Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Best Deal episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about the legendary best deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person executing it. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor possible. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith. I'm the owner of Royal Legal Solutions, uh, your home for all things real estate, asset protection, business, legal, whatever you need. You're a real estate investor. We got it. Come check it out. I'm here today with uh, Paul Moore. He is a phenomenally interesting human being. We're going to be diving into Paul's story today, guys, and you're going to want to stick around for this one because it is a roller coaster of ups, downs, and sideways of what the experience of like um, being an investor when you go through something that is a big, long, twisted tale of events. Um, and I think the key pieces that I'm already gearing up to learn about today is like how little we can actually really know in the moment when we have like a snapshot of what's going on in our lives and how we can really only, you know, we're, we're like a ship that's sailing the ocean and we're tacking back and forth to be able to go to an ultimate goal. But this means that we're moving from side to side, you know, trying to always stay on course. And that's what really like propels us forward, um, to have like an ultimate level of success here. And I think Paul's story is really going to dive in a lot into that. So Paul, Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And if you could just give us a, um, you know, a little background on what do the listeners need to know about you uh, so they can have like an appreciation for the context of the story you're going to tell us today. All right, great. Well, I got an engineering degree, petroleum engineering for you folks from Texas. And uh, that was my first mistake. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I went on and got an MBA, went to Ford Motor Company for five years, got bored pretty, pretty quickly. Great company, still love it, still drive a Ford. But um, I uh, started my own company with a partner and we were able to um, have a lot of success in a short time. I was actually finalist for Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two years in a row in the 90s. We sold our company in 1997 and I put $1.9 million in the bank, which doesn't seem like a whole lot of money now, but at a, thir at a 35 years old and somebody who wanted to give my life to some bigger causes that I was passionate about, it seemed like a great thing. So we went to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. We had two kids at the time that turned into four somehow. And um, we, uh, we started a nonprofit organization actually reaching out to international students studying in the U.S. because uh, international students are surprisingly lonely and they surprisingly don't have very many connections with American families. So we had a 120-acre farm. We got five families involved, had a lot of fun. But I got to tell you, you know, it sounds romantic or cool to semi-retire in your mid-30s, but I got bored. I mean, I really got bored and I became the most miserable version of myself. Just ask my wife or actually don't. But at any rate, um, I, I, you know, was a hard charging type A entrepreneur. And so when my friend moved to town and said he had a lot of experience doing maintenance on houses, we decided to buy a fixer upper. And that was before the term flip, house flip came into vogue. And that was the year 2000. So we bought it and we made $24,000, like literally just in a couple weeks by, I think we just painted it and cleaned it and that's it. And um, 
So we thought this is easy and we thought we could just do it over and over. And of course we lost money on two of the next four deals, which is one of the reasons I have a podcast called how to lose money. But uh, at any rate, um, we did dozens and dozens of these house flips, built some houses. It's not a really good idea, Scott, by the way, if you don't know how to tighten the doorknob on your house to build a house from the ground up, but that didn't stop us from building seven. And uh, anyway, uh, I, I built a real estate website, had all kinds of fun, started flipping very expensive waterfront lots at a lake in central Virginia called Smith Mountain Lake. It was actually where What About Bob with Bill Murray was filmed, um, not Lake Winnipesaukee, as they said. And um, at any rate, we got into a situation where we had a lot of debt, but it was tied to real estate, which is one of the things I love about real estate is there's always a hard asset involved. And uh, we found ourselves going from a, almost a couple million in the bank a decade later to having two and a half million dollars in debt. And uh, so that's kind of the setup for today's story. And so you go from being wealthy for the time period yeah. to saying, holy smokes, how the hell am I going to dig myself out of this hole right here? And I don't know, like, it, it, it's like one of those things that it's like equivalent of uh, like a lawsuit, right? Like nobody knows what it's like to be sued until you're sued. And you don't really know how mm. like the anxiety levels and like the, just the soul crushing weight of it is to be in huge debt until you're in it. And yeah. as a company, right? I mean, like, that's just not something we have, like a lot of people have experience in. So, I mean, right. maybe that's like a good place to start is because when you find yourself in that kind of position where you have like the stresses of the world are on top of you and you don't see like a way out. If you did see an easy way out, you probably wouldn't be in huge debt, right? right. In the first place, right? What do, you, what do you do that brings you back to, allows you to keep, um, moving forward when you find yourself in that kind of position? You know, I don't know if it was stupidity or faith or what, but I, I don't remember losing more than five or 10 minutes of sleep, if any, in that period. And, and like, I, like you said at the beginning of the show, I didn't know we were, I knew it was getting bad, the economy that is. It was 2000, it was actually the end of 2007. And the economy where we were was based on, excuse me, at Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia was resort. And since that's a non-necessity, you know, a lakefront home, we'd already been feeling the pre-effects of the recession since, believe it or not, the very end of 2005 or early 2006 for sure. And uh, so it was late 2007. I didn't know how bad things were going to be. And, but I, I just had this piece that it was all going to work out. I, I think in retrospect, it was much worse than I thought at the time. I don't know why. I, I, just, uh, I just had, a, a, I won't say a lot of peace about it, but I, didn't, I wasn't incredibly anxious. Let's put it that way. And so um, we went into this going again, going into this plunging into this horrible crisis in the economy in the U.S. and especially affecting, you know, things like waterfront lots and homes. And we had all these waterfront lots, including a five acre lot that we were sure we would be able to divide into five one acre lots and sell for a huge profit. That was the source of about 900,000 of the two and a half million dollars in debt right there. And so, and we had several other lots. We had our own vacation home that was in that debt number. Well, my partner came to me and he said, you know, and uh, he said, 
you know, I can't do this anymore. I can't make these crushing interest payments. And so in about a month or two, if we haven't sold anything, I'm just going to have to quit and you're going to be, sorry, <clears throat> left with all these interest payments. Now, my partner and I are still friends today. You might not think that. He's actually still on my real estate team. I've got a team of agents at the lake. But um, uh, it, it was a tough place to be. And so I was sitting on a Sunday morning in my leather chair meditating, which I try to do every morning. And I was thinking, what am I going to do? And this really distinct thought came to me. And it was WWGMD. It didn't actually come that way. I'm being a little cute here. But it was what would George Mueller do? Not what would grandma do, by the way. But um, what would George Mueller do? Now, George Mueller was a hellion from uh, Germany who was born in the early 1800s. And he lived essentially through the whole century to the end of the 1800s. He actually moved to England and he was uh, gripped. He, 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 he reneged on his hellish ways and he decided he wanted to do good for society. And he was gripped with this idea that if you're doing something really good and something really meaningful, you won't have to go out and raise a lot of money and have a huge capital campaign. Interesting. And so uh, Mueller started orphanages and he started raising money uh, simply through his mindset and through just the, the magnetism of what he was doing, it became widely known around England and people started sending him money. It was through mindset, through his own prayer, through his own faith. And he raised, I think, what was equivalent to almost $200 million in today's dollars. And if you look at the numbers of orphans he served, it might have been much more than that because he served, I think it was a total of 10,000. He housed and cared for 10,000 orphans for years. Uh, that's a t in total through that century. Well, I thought, what would George Mueller do? And I thought, well, first of all, he wouldn't be in debt. And so I wouldn't have anything in common with that at the moment. But secondly, if he was in debt, I thought Mueller would start giving generously because he was super generous with whatever came in. He gave a bunch away and he's, he needed a lot. Anyway, so I thought, yeah, that's the idea. Okay. So I called two friends together who met with me at a Hardy's restaurant. And for you on the West Coast, that's Carl's Jr. And they met with me one day and said, hey, you have no way out. Let's face it. You're going to have to declare bankruptcy. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm going to give my way out of debt. And they looked at each other. They looked at me and they said, um, what? <laughs> and I told him how I was going to start giving generously to causes I cared about. I said, look, my back's against the wall. It can't get any worse. I don't see how it can get much worse than it is. So I'm going to start giving generously and we'll see what happens because I really believe in the universal law of sowing and reaping. And so we'll see what happens. You know, other religions call it karma. I said, so I'm just going to see what happens. So I called my family together. I told them what I was doing. My wife was, uh, understandably concerned and um <laughs> yeah, yeah to say the least don't worry about it babe i got it the idea yeah. is, is we give it all away and she's yeah. like, we, we don't have anything anymore right yeah. i honestly yeah. don't know scott where i even came up with the money to give i can't remember that little detail i think i was i mean i hate to admit this and dave ramsey fans would just pell me with uh, with tomatoes for saying this, but I think I actually borrowed the money to give. I don't know. I, I think it was on my last little bit of my home equity line. But anyway, we acted like we had half a million dollars in income. Oh, by the way, my income, not only my investments, but my income was from real estate as well. And it was in the toilet, as we all know. Hmm. 
And so I acted like we had half a million dollars of income coming in and I started giving generously based on that, that, you know, that, that premise that we actually had half a million or I was believing that we would have half a million soon in income. And so I started giving, we gave every week through the month of January of 2008. And in the fourth week of that, I was at a Subway restaurant, ran into a real estate developer who had been quite successful at this lake. I told him my dilemma. I told him about the five acres that I couldn't subdivide. He goes, oh yeah, you ought to try this. And for time's sake, I won't go into it. It's kind of technical, but you ought to try this. And I said, oh yeah, yeah. I thought through that. I looked at that law. It won't work. He goes, huh? Well, you know, it just might work if you do this. And he kind of said one or two sentences. And it was like this massive light bulb went off in my brain. And I was like, wow, yeah, that could work. So I called my surveyor right away. And within two days, Scott, we were sitting in front of the planning and zoning uh, commission or the administrator, I should say, for the commission. And we laid out this plan. We laid out the law that she was in charge of enforcing that would stop us from doing this, which is what I told the developer why it wouldn't work. And I said, but did you realize if you looked at your law in a different way, it could actually be encouraging me to subdivide my land into five one acre lots? And I told her how. And she she was an older lady and she she probably had one of these. She looked up over her glasses and she just smirked and she looked at me. She goes, I've been working here for 20 or 30 years, whatever. She said, no one has ever come to me with an idea like that. It's, I think she might've said preposterous. And then she <laughs> kind of smiled out of the corner of her mouth and she said, but I can't stop you. You're right. You found a loophole in our law that no one else has ever seen you can subdivide your land using that plan. And my surveyor and I went out and high-fived in the parking lot and we we're like, yeah, we can do this. Well, there were still some huge hurdles ahead, including a massive fight I got into with my bank over this plan and some other things that if you ask me after I'm done here, I can tell you the details of. But at any rate, uh, we worked really, really hard. We kept giving generously. We had a lot of, of, of you know, money we had to spend, surveys that had to be done, soil tests that had to be done to make this work. But we were completely debt-free 13 months later. And the way we did it principally was selling these five one-acre lots that we had about 900,000 in debt on. I think we sold them for a total of 1.3 million. And that was literally in the heart, and I mean right in the middle of the biggest downturn since the Great Depression. I remember it was September of 2008. Uh, it was August and September. We were selling all these lots. We sold all five, uh, four of the five very, very quickly in sequence. And um, for, uh, right then is when I remember uh, President Bush was in his office saying, this whole sucker may go down if we don't inject whatever, trillion dollars or whatever to save this. And that was right when I was selling these lots. It still worked and it turned into the, it turned from the very worst real estate deal of my life into the best, most profitable real estate deal I ever had. And so my family still 
talks about it and we still tell the story of how this happened and uh, we'll never forget it. We learned a, a lesson in uh, maybe insanity and generosity uh, along the way and we had a lot of fun. Well, Paul, it's really cool. I mean, I'd like to go through the story a little bit like piece by piece and just check in with you to see if like certain things that I'm picking up are like true or not. Right. Um, And like, because even initially what you, what it sounded like you initially did is said, well, we're going to start to give and we're going to act as if we're still making $500,000. So we're still going to be projecting success. We're not going to like try to operate from a a lack mentality. Right. We're going to act like through abundance. We're going to project that out to other people. They're not going to feel the tension off of us that we're scrambling or that mm-hmm. we're desperate for doing something. Cause we know that's like a big repulsive factor yeah. for people. Right. Right. Um, there was another cool thing that um, um, I would say two parts to your story that I think are super neat also is one is that you guys just kind of jumped into the deep end of flipping, but it doesn't sound like you had anybody there that was like had 20 years experience guiding you along the way. You guys were like, Oh, this is easy. We'll jump into it yeah. and get into it. Right. And, and then you get caught in situations. You're like, Oh, well shit zoning didn't realize yeah. that that was going to be so hard. Yeah. It, right. Right. Um, and, and the, and that kind of led to it and um, to like this, this sticking point in a lot of ways. Um, so you kept your mindset right. Uh, and then you also kept reaching out to other people, mm-hmm. right? Like you did with that developer to like be yeah. open, to be like, hey, I'm going to keep asking people for help and keep talking right. to them what I have going on, even though it's not good stuff, really, right? It's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to air my dirty laundry in a way and ask people for help. Yeah. Like that itself yeah, is did. difficult to do. Because that takes like a different level of security and courage to be like, you know what, I'm still good and worthwhile and a worthy person, even though I have this huge problem. And a lot of people, I think, misequivocate those two to think that I am my financial success. And without that, I'm not worth anything. And so I can't ask other people for help. But it sounded like you, you were like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go through an abundance mentality. I'm going to go out there and just start asking people, giving to people, and I'm going to start asking people for help until I find out what I need. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, you know, and you, yes, it is fair to say. And you just brought out something in this 10 years since this happened that I had never really thought of. And that is, you know, by being, uh, having a positive mindset and not appearing desperate, I'm sure that probably helped me sell those four and then eventually five lots right in the middle of a time when people were running away from buying waterfront lots. So that's really cool. Yeah, that's all fair to say. Thanks for bringing that out, Scott. Yeah, man, it's really cool because um, you're in a position where people should have tried to gut you, right? Yeah. They would have seen, like, if you would have given off any inclination of, like, desperation, people would have tried to lowball you on the price and known you would have taken it because they would have seen you know, the panic in you. Right. And, and no, I'm just saying like, that's how yeah. business works. Right. Um, I'm laughing because exactly the opposite happened. And if I tell you, if I want through the details with you, you'll be amazed at what. Well, tell me the details. Let's jump into it. I, I got to know the details of this to really know like what's going on with it. Because like, this is such an interesting story because, because of like the strength that you project was actually yeah, from what I from what I'm seeing is like that. Actually, it's tied to actual actions. Like I'm gonna continue to give to not just like Jedi mind trick myself in my closet by meditating. I'm actually gonna take action that's like reinforcing in my brain. Like yeah, I have abundance. I can afford to give away because I have so much abundance to it. So tell me the details. Okay. What, what happened? Now, 
your show is called Real Estate Nerds, right? It's, it's just nerding out. You and me right okay, now. Okay, man. So this <laughs> is some nerdiness, okay? Nerdiness going on here. So, all right. First of all, I had a theory, and it was easy to prove, that uh, Smith Mountain Lake, uh, they only allow you to rent to two people per bedroom in the house. And bedrooms are defined not by the physical rooms, but by the septic system, Okay. So the septic system of almost every house at the lake was two, three, or four bedrooms. Now, three bedrooms rented much better than two and four much better than three. And then there was a few five or six bedroom homes on the lake. And you could rent a six bedroom septic home to 12 people. So those rented for a lot more than a, you know, three or four bedroom home. And so I had this theory. I said, hey, why don't we make eight bedroom septics and we will um, make sure and we will sell every lot as this potential for a high-end rental. When I said high-end, maybe it's not high-end by some resort areas, but this is little Smith Mountain Lake in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, you know, and you could rent a house for, you know, a couple thousand a week. Well, we theorized that we could rent for five or $6,000 a week with an eight bedroom septic because people will be able to get one house rather than two. Furthermore, we said if we did five rental homes in a row, people with really big families could come in and rent two of them. You know, maybe the cousins and brothers and sisters would be in one, et cetera. And so that was our beginning theory with this, okay? Now we couldn't subdivide because it was on a private road. And we very presumptuously in 2006 thought, eh, they'll make that a public road someday soon. They actually had plans they said, to make this into a public road. And then I will be able to subdivide and have 100 feet of frontage and one acre per lot. Okay, that's critical. It was five acres. It had a little over 500 feet of frontage. We could not subdivide it at all as it was on a private road. But if it was on a publicly state-maintained road, we could divide it into five one-acre lots with 100 feet or so of frontage each on the road and 100 feet of waterfront as well, which is another regulation. Well, um, we weren't able to do that, but there's a little known, little used uh, exemption in most county regulations from what I've heard around the country called the family exemption. And the family exemption was made for farmers. Maybe a farmer would have 100 acres and they would wanna cut off one or five acres to give to their child or to an aging parent to, um, uh, to allow them to put a house on. You've seen these uh, farms with let's say 100 acres, but it might have a five acre, like a gravel lane and a five acre house way down this lane or, or by the road or whatever. Well, this family exemption didn't say it was just for farmers, it just said it was for people who wanted to cut off a piece of land and donate it to a family member. The problem was when you cut off a piece of land and donated it, you have to wait three or four years, it's in the law, three years, I think it was, or more till that piece could ever be sold because they didn't want to handcuff that person to live there forever. But you have to wait three years or more. I didn't have three years per cut. If I was going to cut this five acres into four plus one, well, if I was going to donate the one, they'd have to wait three years to sell it. Uh, and then I'd have, to, I'd have to wait three years between sales and I'd have been obviously really bankrupt. And that's why I told the developer, the family exemption won't work for me. And then he made this comment. He said, well, you know, it might work. 
did you ever read the law carefully and see if what you, what you do with the tract you divide from? In other words, the tract you split off has to be held for three years. But does the tract that you're splitting from, in other words, the master tract or the mother tract, if you will, does that have to be held for three years? I don't know. You ought to check it out. And that's what he said, and that's when the light bulb went on. Now, this is a little bit techie, but let me try to explain it. So what we did is we theorized if we could sell the entire, if we could get buyers for four of the five lots lined up in sequence, <laughs> we could actually sell the entire five acres to a guy. And we did that to a guy named Craig. Now get this, we're talking about in the worst moment of the Great Recession, I sold him the entire five acres for, get this, $1.3 million. He had to trust me on faith that I was going to be able to pull off the next step or he was going to be terribly messed up. He signed a loan. He signed the closing papers for $1.3 million for five acres. Then he cut it into four acres plus one. He held the four acres as the, mass, as the mother tract, and then he split off the one acre and donated it to his wife, Okay. He donated the one acre to his wife. He held the four, but then a day later, I kid you not, he sold the four acre tract because the law didn't say you had to wait three years to sell the master or the mother tract or whatever you call it. The next guy paid, I think it was 950,000 for the four acres. And then he cut off one acre, donated to his wife, and then he had three acres left, and he sold that to the next guy in line a day later. Actually, it turned out a week later for 650000 That guy did the same thing, sold the next one for 325000 and then the last guy just bought that lot. And like I said, the county approved this. Every one of them had an eight-bedroom septic. This was the plan. I skipped one thing. We had to convince a bank to make a one a loan based on $1.3 million for this five acre tract. And the lot, it was only assessed and appraised at about 800,000. We had to convince a bank to loan Craig, the first guy in line, like 1.1 million, or maybe it was 1 million, to buy the $1.3 million lot. The bank that had my $900,000 note said I was crazy. There's no way they'd be part of anything like this. It was a big, well-known bank. I won't name them. No, I won't. Uh, and <laughs> I didn't actually, do anything wrong. It just didn't meet their underwriting. No, they, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't. Yeah. But I was yeah. pretty good friends with the vice president of that bank. Yeah. And I had one of my finest moments, Scott. I'm actually a really nice guy. I stood up and I pointed in his face and I said, if you don't let me do this, I'll be handing the title, the deed to this land back to you and you can foreclose. He goes, well, let's not get huffy about it. I said, <laughs> you're the one. I just spent two months getting this surveyed, getting these soil tests, getting, I'm starting to get buyers lined up. I didn't have them all yet. And you are trying to stop me. And he said, well, uh, uh, you know, I, and, and anyway, so I stormed out of there and I didn't turn around. And I called a lawyer, I called a pretty fierce lawyer and I sicked him on them. And they actually, this bank, get this, they gave me an $80,000 discount to pay them off. Now, of course, I didn't have the money to pay them off. 
What I did is I went to a local community bank right near that lake, and I told them the whole story, told them everything about the bank, my plan, the, my cockeyed scheme, the county, the buyers I had lined up. I might have had one or two of the, five, of the four or five by them. And they agreed to this. They agreed to take out that loan of $900,000, which by the way was only eight twenty dollars because they gave me an $80,000 discount. And they agreed to refinance me. And that first bank, the one that wouldn't do it, was out. And then that second bank walked through and they loaned the money to each one of these four buyers along the way to get this done, which was crazy. And yeah, that is super crazy. Even I as I say it, yeah. crazy. I would call this a miracle. Yeah, so in a way it is, right? Because you should have had to go to loan sharks, right? Like in any I know. scenario, you'd have to go to loan sharks to get paid off like a hard money lender of some sort, right? To be able to I heard the term hard money loan for the first time that year. And I was <laughs> actually calling them and finding out all about their terms. I don't think I really, Scott, I don't even think they would have done it. No, no, probably not, right? Because the collateral just doesn't make sense. So yeah. like, how in the world did you position this to sell it to the bank to be able to get them to say like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll lend you more money than the collateral? I think it's a miracle. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, okay. I, just, I, I told him, I said, look, I said, you're loaning Craig. The first, the first one was the worst. Craig's buying this whole five acre track for 1.3 million. You're only loaning him, let's say it was a million. He was putting up 300,000 cash. Uh, I promise you, and I will bring you the contract that the next guy is going to take him out and pay off that first loan. Uh, I, like I said, the next guy in line was 950, I think. So this next guy is going to come in and take that loan out. And that guy, Craig, will own it for cash, or maybe he'll have a small loan left with you. And you can provide the financing to the second guy and you can charge. I didn't tell him this. He actually thought of this part. He said, well, can I charge a point or two on each one of these loans? I said, sure, of course. <laughs> and, and he did. And then later about halfway through this process, maybe we're in week three of five. He's like, you know, you got a really good deal out of this whole thing. I, I should have charged you more. I said, yeah, thanks. So, <laughs> Well, how did you develop the, um, that kind of relationship with the banker? Because obviously to, to get somebody to do this type of deal, they have to have a high level of trust in you, right? I mean, was there, was there a particular like pre-existing relationship that you were able to cultivate to tap on in this? Or was this something that was new and cold that you had to then warm up to, to, to Paul to see if they're going to do this deal? Scott, I'm getting a little teary here. Seriously, you can see me here on the camera. Um, I never thought of that before. I didn't know the banker at all. You didn't know this guy at all? No, I walked in off the street. I'd heard he was um, really flexible in his terms. And I walked in and, and just sat down with him. That's incredible. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Amazing. I never thought of that. That's pretty amazing. You're right. That I should have had to have. It, it was a miracle. Yeah. I mean, like the stars like lined up for you. I know. You can find out about this guy, that he's willing to work with you, that he's going totally on faith of what some stuff that could easily blow up and leave him holding the bag, right? Oh, yeah. If I'm that guy's attorney, I'm like, no way. Yeah. <laughs> You're not doing this loan, you know? But like there must have been something that you had uh, working for you at that time, Paul, to like have that line up for you. I know. Yeah, I know it, it is amazing. And again, I think it goes back to my crazy scheme 
of trying to give our way out of debt. And, and I would say to, to you and to me and to my kids and to, the, to your audience, you know, it, some of, the, some of the, the greatest business people in the world, I'm thinking of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett right now, but many others are really, really generous. And the law of generosity, by the way, I don't think it's like a vending machine you can put in money and it always would work. I don't know if I was faced with that same problem again, if it would work again, but I do believe that there is a universal law of instant car or not instant, but karma or, in, you know, uh, or sowing and reaping. And I believe that it, 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 for the most part is always true. Yeah. I, I think there's definitely something, um, when it comes into mindset, that's more, um, like you already do, it sounds like you already have a pretty strong like meditation practice, right? And mm -hmm. it comes into, and those are super helpful. And I do it myself too a lot for being able to help me with mindset issue, mindset stuff just in general. Um, especially if like the day starts going crazy, I'll take five minutes to meditate. But there's something that might be really powerful and I'm not 100% sure. We'd have to probably talk to one of the spiritual gurus of the world though. But like if, if you can be generous from the place where you actually can feel it, that like I have abundance so much that I yeah. can give away and I'm okay and actually internalize that. It helps you to always have like this open, like this openness to it to actually change your factual state mm -hmm. of being. Because part of like what you're pulling off in every turn of this story, Paul, I think fundamentally has to relate to that. Because if people got a whiff of desperation, which you should have been desperate, and they got a whiff that you thought, I, can't, I might not pull this off into that, yeah. there's no way you get people to be able to come on board with this I type know. of deal to it. And it could be like exactly rooted in, I'm going to actually take physical actions that are going to change my brain's way of operating yeah. here. So that way I really believe that I'm operating in abundance and I'm going to show that and reinforce it, even though like it stands against reality, oh, and, I know. you know, but like, those are the ways that like all the great teachers have always taught about how do we change mindset? Because we, the reality that we are trying to create doesn't exist yet. It's the next moment that it can exist. Right. Right. But we have to accept that reality as if it already exists and then feel the emotion as if it already has come into existence. And when you can do that, then you can do these incredible things, Paul, like you're talking about here. It's really but true. I, it's, it's incredible to hear your story, man, because this is the, you're one of the first people I've ever talked to who's actually like walked it onto like, what does that actually look like? And not like a really like fancy term of like, oh yeah, you believe it and the world's going to be great. And yeah. I gave $5 to the homeless person. So I, I want to scratch off a lot of ticket and not thinking that the universe might work that way. I'm not sure. But what I definitely know is, <laughs> is that like taking actions changes the way our minds work. Right. And then it can change the way the world operates around us because we're different. And so we're inherently part of the equation with how the world interacts with us. And you've actually yeah. walked through it, man. That is so awesome, bro. I mean, yeah, I probably could sit here and just talk for another 10 minutes on like all the things I pick up um, out of your story, Paul. But I was wondering, is there anything else that you wanted to share with us here today before, before we wrap up and, and talk about lessons learned? I don't think there's anything else about that story, except that one thing that just, again, you brought out three things I had never thought about as I pondered the story over 10 years. And another one is the savviness of these guys who were the buyers. Um, one, uh, Craig was a, a restaurateur, uh, if that's the right word, who owned four really nice restaurants in DC. 
Uh, and uh, Craig was actually with me on House Hunters, HGTV's House Hunters, about a year before this and buying another house. And so he was uh, really a sharp guy. The next guy in line who paid, I think, nine fifty for the four acres that remained. Uh, oh, I kept saying the mother track, the parent track. That's what it was called. <laughs> um, the, that guy was this super sharp, very high-end, high-dollar consultant from New York City uh, from a firm that you would have heard of. And uh, so, I mean, these guys, to agree to this, it just, it's mind-boggling. I mean, the guys way down the list, you know, that toward the end, they didn't have much risk at all, you know, uh, buying the last couple lots. It was more like a straightforward purchase. But even then, to sell a waterfront lot in, a, in the recession, lots are still, nine years later, not selling very well now. From 2009 to now, there's been very few waterfront lots sold at the lake. People are mostly buying existing homes since the recession. So, yeah, I feel very grateful and uh, very thankful that this happened. And I'm hoping my kids and grandkids will have a story to tell about their crazy father or grandfather, what he did. So, yeah, um, I actually, once we get into lessons learned, I think I have something else to how it helped teach me something uh, for what I'm doing now. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I mean, I picked up... Um, out of your story today from, from learning, uh, from listening to you, Paul, I mean, there's a ton of things, right. And I think I've gone over most of them, but one of the key pieces I think we touched on yet was that, um, you started the whole project with like a really big goal and it was a huge idea, right. Into saying, Hey, how can I buy these lots and then I can convert them. And here's this whole swath of opportunity that's here yeah. that, that nobody's picking up on yet. Right. Right. Um, and, and what, it's something that as an entrepreneur, one of the lessons that I'm, I've, I've learned from you in this story was if you start really high and you see a ton of opportunity that's there and you go for it really big, you're shooting for the stars. When you slip really bad, you can still just land up on the moon, which is okay. <laughs> yeah. You know? that's, right? that's, that's a good point. You're shooting high enough for it to really go wrong and be okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something that I have to remind myself of is saying like, yeah, it's, you want to shoot big because yeah. Um, it's when you shoot really small, if you miss, then you're, you know, right. uh, you haven't gone anywhere. Right. Right. Um, so I think that's what, that I got out today, Paul, what would, what's something that you'd like to leave the, the listeners with after telling your story today? It's a lesson that you kind of take away that you want everybody to, to underline and understand. Well, I actually should have said this earlier. This is not a huge takeaway, but one other thing, I, I don't know if it was obvious that I would point out was, um, on December 31st, I was half owner of this property. I had half the debt. Uh, and I had half of the interest payments and I would have made half the profit on what eventually turned out to what was the profit on that something like half a million dollar profit on January 1st, my partner walked and that's right when I started being, you know, generous and giving, uh, generously. And he did had no idea that four weeks later that I would have a solution for, you know, for this whole problem. And uh, even though I was left with double the interest payments, I made all the profit on that and he didn't make any. And that might sound like I'm angry or something. I'm not at all. I want to even be clear on this. Once I came up with the solution at the end of January, I called my former partner and said, I want you to know, I think I've got a way out of this if you still want to stay in. He said no. So um, anyway, that was just another little funny piece to the story. 
I don't know what lesson I can learn from that. But um, anyway, it's just another piece that's amazing to me. Um, I Right now, I'm raising capital for commercial real estate deals. And what I've learned, and you just did a great job bringing it out, Scott, and that is uh, a hint of desperation and the person in control, the person with the money to invest, is gone. And so I don't know, you know, I think maybe that story does connect to this because I'm not, I'm, and I'm honestly not, and you know me a little bit, we've talked before, I'm not desperate at all to raise money from people. I had someone contact me today, when can I invest? I said, well, you better, when we have a, an opportunity to invest in, you better act quickly because we have a lot more investors than we have opportunities. And that's my attitude. That used to be the opposite of my attitude. I think before 2008, I would have been like this desperate, clamoring, will you invest please, sir? And now I'm really not. And so I think that's really helped. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a story real quickly, I'll tell you. I think um, you might've heard it before. If you're up north, and, and this is a silly analogy in some ways, but if you're up north and you love salmon and you wanna live on salmon, and you're in Washington or Oregon or you know uh, British Columbia, and you can become a spear fisherman, which means you can go learn to cut whittle limbs and learn to throw the spear and look for salmon fishing by in a dark stream or dark lake, dark lake, and hopefully have a good aim. Hopefully hit the salmon, and you'll hit every now and then, and you might have enough to live on. And that is what a lot of people raising funds, raising capital for real estate projects do. They're like a spear fisherman, but there's a better way. And this is where the analogy is a little silly. You can become a grizzly bear. And I don't know if you've seen these, Scott, but these grizzly bears stand with their jaw kind of unhinged and they stand right in a waterfall and salmon jump into their mouth. And the question is, what can we do as investors, as entrepreneurs, as people, to be the grizzly bear in the waterfall where people are coming to us asking if they can be part of what we're doing. And the answer for everybody will be different, but I guess I would say in summary, have a great product, service, or investment, and people will come to you asking you to be part of what you're doing. Yeah, 100%. If you mean, if you develop something great and then tell everybody about it you know, and say, Hey, look at this great thing that I built. And then people yeah. will buy from you and they'll want to do right. business with you because you yeah. got ideas and you're taking action. I mean, it's really just that simple, right? Right. In terms of entrepreneurial pieces, you know? So Paul, right. if anybody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, they can listen to our podcast. It's how to lose money, how to lose money.com. We're on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, my company is Wellings Capital. That's W E L L I N G S Capital dot com and they can reach out to me there awesome paul thanks so much for for coming on the show today um and and sharing your story and um of course everybody this is your host scott royal smith with the real estate nerds podcast uh, i'm the owner here at royal legal solutions the one-stop shop for everything real estate investor tax business asset protection um, thanks again paul and everybody else uh, have a great uh, have a great day and we'll see you again soon that's all for this Best Deal episode, and I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith, with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. When investments go good, they can go great. Your legendary Best Deal could be your next one, so keep at it. Thank you for joining us, and if you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in those sleeping masses for what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day, and I'll see you again soon.